John chapter 21, we're going to look at the first 17 verses this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with myself, I find that oftentimes I feel less than energized for the task at hand, for the ministry that God has called me to. And I don't know if that's just because I have three children, three boys under the age of five, or pastoral ministry is difficult, or it's just kind of a combination of all those things. But as Christians, we are called to go, to bring the gospel to the nations. And whether that going is to our next door neighbor, to the folks here in our town of Idlewild, or to the ends of the earth, you have been called by Christ to tell others about Jesus. And it's interesting as we look at this passage this morning in John 21, we're going to see a bunch of disciples who were not going. In fact, they were hiding. Jesus had just been killed. He had just been crucified. And we don't see the disciples out on the streets telling of the witness of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We find them hiding in the upper room behind locked doors, fearful for their lives because they were afraid that the same fate would come to them. These disciples were scared and they, they had been commissioned by Christ. They had been called to a higher life. And even after the resurrection, they didn't feel up to the task. And as we look at John chapter 21 together, we're going to see the ways in which Jesus plans to give his people the ability to feed his sheep. To help us pursue the difficult task of following him as his disciples. If anybody told you that this life was easy, they were lying. The, the, the Christian life is filled with joy and hope and peace. But it is a difficult road to walk. We're going to see these disciples start to transform from men hiding behind locked doors to bold followers who end up taking the gospel message to the entire known world. Now we're told in verse 14 that this appearance of Jesus to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee was the third time he had appeared to them collectively as a group. We know the first time was the night of the resurrection in the locked upper room. He's just there. They're hiding, they're praying, they're, they're fearful behind locked doors, and, and all of a sudden Jesus is in their midst. It doesn't say he unlocked the door. It doesn't say he walked through it. He's just there with them. And all the disciples at that point, other than Thomas, were, were there for that encounter. Then we have the two Emmaus Road disciples. They had an encounter with Jesus walking on the road. And after they met Jesus, they immediately went back to report to the other disciples of what they had seen. That's in Luke chapter 24, 33. Now the second time that Jesus appeared to the entire group was a week later when he appeared to Thomas and the whole group of disciples. You'll remember this story because Thomas, when he heard about the risen Savior, had said, 
I will never believe unless I put my fingers and I, if I put my fist in his side. That's the only way that I'll believe. Jesus actually grants him that request. And he appears to this group of disciples and he says, Here, Thomas, see the nail scars. Put your hand in my side. Now it's logical that this third appearance, this third encounter with the risen Savior, happened a week after the Feast of Unleavened Bread had finished. <clears throat> this week-long festival held in the capital of Jerusalem was an amazing time. And, and the disciples during that time were, were being their cowardly selves, locked away, hidden, for fear of their lives. And, and more than likely, when the crowd started to disperse from Jerusalem, and they all started heading home, and there was traffic on the road, they thought to themselves, this is a good time to get out of Dodge. Right? We can blend in with the crowds. If Romans are looking for us, or if the Jewish leaders are looking for us, it's our best chance of getting out of the city at this point. Now, Jesus had told them to meet him in Galilee. They were supposed to return to their hometowns. And, and, and all the Jews were going. Jesus had told them to come to the, to the Sea of Galilee. And after the second Sunday that the feast was over, they begin this 80-mile journey back towards the north of Israel. Now, this, this area of Galilee was a place full of incredible memories for the disciples. This was where their ministry with Jesus began. Most of them had grown up in this area. And it was here that they had spent countless hours with Jesus in teaching, watching Him heal, watching Him do miracles. They were doing ministry with Jesus here. But I want us to stop and think for a moment about Peter. What was Peter's last encounter with Jesus? Denial. Around a, around a Roman fire in the courtyard where Jesus was being flogged and beaten. That was the last time he saw Jesus. And you wonder what was going on in his mind as he made that 80-mile trek back home. Jesus is waiting for me there. Jesus has called me to meet him there. What am I going to say to him? Is he going to call me out? Is he going to tell me to take a hike? And no doubt Satan reinforced that thought in Peter's mind. You are a failure. You denied Christ even though you promised you never would. Peter probably didn't even feel worthy to travel in the company of the other disciples. It would have been such a shame for him to admit the fact of what he did. He failed Jesus in his greatest moment of need. But the Lord knew Peter's heart. He made sure that Peter gets a personal invitation from Jesus. He invites Peter specifically by name in the Gospel of Mark. He tells him, Peter, I want you to come and meet me in Galilee. 
It wasn't just a call to all the disciples. It was a call to Peter himself. And I wonder the struggle that Peter was facing as he journeyed for three, four days to meet the Lord. Now, we've all had these kind of times when we fail, when we sin, when we fall away, when we look at our past and say, how can Jesus ever forgive that? And we live in that regret and that shame and that failure. And the enemy would have us believe that somehow, when we fail like that, that Jesus is done with us. He puts that thought in our head. Jesus doesn't love you. Jesus doesn't cover that sin. But Jesus wasn't done with Peter. And he isn't done with us either. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 together. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, Do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? If you haven't seen them, I'm going to spoil it. But the analogy is too good, I can't pass it up. So, At the end of this trilogy of films, this group that set out to destroy the one ring They battled each other. They battled the forces of darkness. And they finally succeeded in destroying the ring. And they leave Mount Doom. And we see Frodo and Sam heading back to the Shire. And what's striking about this picture is that everyone in the Shire is going about their business like nothing's ever happened. Nothing has changed at home. Nothing has changed in the Shire. But for Sam and Frodo, everything has changed. I think that must be a little bit what it was like for these disciples as they experienced this journey home. In the previous couple weeks, they had seen Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey proclaimed as king. They had fled in terror after the garden as Jesus was arrested and beaten and tortured. Victory in their mind was so close. And then it seemed like Jesus had just failed at the mission he had called them to. 
How can our leader have died? Now what are we supposed to do? After following for him for three years, the victory in their mind seemed so close. And it seemed like defeat as Jesus hung there on the cross for them. The disciples at this time were overcome with their fear and their shame. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is back. Just three days later. He's risen from the dead, and victory has been claimed. But as the disciples head back to Galilee, it seems like nothing has changed. Everything at home is just as it was when they left. The disciples know in their hearts that everything is supposed to be different. But they have to wait for the Lord to see what's going to happen next. Now at this point, uh, Peter decides he's going to go fishing. Now I don't know if it's just because they were hungry or, you know, he was a fisherman before. Maybe he just wanted something to do. He thought, I'm comfortable with this. Let's go and get some, get some fish. Maybe he wanted to earn some money. I don't know. But he tells the disciples, I'm going to go fishing. And they say, okay, a lot of us were fishermen. We'll go with you. Now, I don't know if Peter's just out of practice. You know, it's been probably three, three and a half years since he's fished. But they don't do a good job. They don't catch anything. They fish all night. And this guy who's a, supposedly a career fisherman catches nothing. Right? Tack that on top of the already terrible week he's having. This is it's just kind of, it's, it's a bummer for Peter. He's not having a good week, right? He's definitely had better moments in his life. But he heads back out to do what he knows best. He takes his buddy with him. They, they try to fish. They try to catch some stuff. They're hungry. They're ready for breakfast. It's morning time. And they got nothing. They got nothing. And it's interesting that until Jesus shows up, they don't catch anything. Now, I always laugh because, you know, from the shoreline, Jesus is like, hey, guys, got any fish? And, you know, I'm not a fisherman, but I'm, I'm, this is like a common question. Fishermen ask each other, like, hey, what'd you get? What'd you catch, you know? So I think for them it would have been a normal question. They don't realize in this moment that it's Jesus, right? It says they're unaware. But think about this as this story unfolds. Jesus is making a request of them that seems kind of ridiculous. Well, just put your net on the other side. I mean, a, a boat was only six, eight feet wide, maybe. Why would fish be on the other side? It's nonsense. Right? It reminds me of another story. And I wonder how long it took these disciples to remember this story. But it was a story when Jesus first called them to follow him. And again, they fished all night, and they caught nothing. And Jesus tells them, hey, it's the morning time. Push out just a little bit further into the deeper waters. Then you'll catch some stuff. What do they do? They listen. They push out, and it says their boats were so filled that two of the boats together... 
almost sank as they came back into shore with all the fish. That was a lot of fish. So these guys, they listen to Jesus. They, they, they hear him say, take the nets and put them on the other side. They do it. And immediately it says they catch a huge amount of fish, 153 fish, big fish. If you're a fisherman, big fish. Anyways, it says that they caught so many they had difficulty hauling the nets in. And I think it's at that point that these disciples remember a time three years before that the Lord was calling them and reminding them that you will no longer be fishers, fishermen, but you will be fishers of men. Jesus demonstrated again his, his authority over nature. And he gives them this supernatural catch of fish. And when they see this miracles, miracle repeated in front of their eyes, they knew right then and there it was the Lord on the shoreline. And John, referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, who was also a fisherman and probably one of the partners that Peter had in his early days, says to Peter, it is the Lord. It's almost like he's telling Peter, it's happening again. Remember that moment that Jesus called us. What a welcome sight it must have been to see Jesus. And how wonderful that he would revisit with them in this same spot where he called them out. Reminding them, that, reminding them of his first encounter with them. And at the words of John, Peter, being the man that he is, gets dressed and dives right in. Right? Peter, Peter does this often. Right? This is kind of his M.O., uh, Lord, tell me to come walk on the way on the water. I can do that. Sure, sure. Oh, there's a there's a Roman centurion coming to arrest you. Right? This is this is Peter, right? Tempestuous. He's a he's a go getter. He just wanted to be with Jesus. So much so that he didn't even want to wait for the boats to come back to shore. But it's interesting because I wonder with all the dread all the emotions that went into this encounter together, in that split second, all he wanted was Jesus. For us Christians, this is an important reminder. We will all sin and we will all fail. Maybe as epically as Peter did. What is your response when he's calling you home? For many of us, we turn and go the other way, away from the Lord. Peter is an excellent example for us. Even amidst the guilt and the fear and the shame and everything that Jesus could have said to him in that moment, he decided, all I need is to be next to him. 
so much so that I'm going to just dive into some icy cold water, take a swim at 5 in the morning to get next to Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. It says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's worth noting that when the disciples came ashore, Jesus already had a charcoal fire burning with fish on it. He then brought out the bread for them to eat with the fish. And just as he had washed their feet in the upper room, he now fixes them breakfast. Jesus really is the servant king that has come to serve his people. And he was reminding the disciples that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's something else interesting going on here. Because I wonder if Peter would have noticed that the fire on the shoreline wasn't a wood fire. Typically along a seashore you'll find lots of dry and dead wood. Excellent for making a fire by the, by the water. And yet it specifically says that Jesus made a charcoal fire. When Peter had denied that he knew Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest, what kind of fire was in that courtyard? A charcoal fire. He had left that charcoal fire a broken man. A man who had denied his Savior. But in our passage today, he is restored beside a charcoal fire, beside the very kind of fire that he denied Jesus at. Now, this isn't the first one-on-one meeting that Peter has with Jesus. We're told in Luke's account that Jesus had already appeared to Simon before this personally. When the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who had walked and talked with Jesus, returned to Jerusalem on that Sunday night, they found the disciples gathered together, and it was then that they were told, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Now, we don't know anything about that encounter that Peter had with the risen Lord. We just know that it was just Jesus and just Peter. We don't know what Jesus said to Peter, but I can only picture Peter a broken man sitting at the feet of his Lord, weeping for his failure. You see, in this moment, Peter not only needed to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, he needed to forgive himself. And so often for us, after we as Christians have given our sins to the Lord, who beats us up? We do. We're the ones remembering our sins. We're the ones holding on to our past, to clinging on to our failures. Jesus says, as far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more. He makes that promise, and yet we so desperately cling to those failures in our lives. 
Jesus knew that Peter would need to be forgiven and restored publicly in front of the other disciples. Because Peter had denied Jesus publicly. And now Jesus restores him publicly. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Peter had denied Christ three times, and Jesus reinstates him by asking him three times if he loves him. Now often when we are in a situation where we have to confront someone else, the hard part is actually bringing up the issue at hand. Right? It's actually getting to the offense. How did Jesus bring up the issue with Peter? Does he ask Peter, hey, Remember when you denied me around that fire in the courtyard when I was being crucified? Remember when I was being beaten and you were scared of a little girl? There's no snark in Jesus, right? There's no pretense. He, he simply asks Peter what he needs to hear. He's making a statement about who Peter is when he's with Jesus. The first thing we notice when the Lord comes to Peter is that he calls him by the name in which he grew up. Simon, son of John. This would have been his childhood name. A name that maybe only his mommy still called him. And it's a contrast to the title that the Lord had given Peter already. The Rock. It's almost as if the Lord is asking, Peter, do you remember your life before we met? Do you remember who you were before you had me? I wonder if Peter's mind flashed back a few weeks to the upper room. When he boldly stands in confidence to all the disciples and says, Even if all turn away, on account of you, I never will. Those words had to be fresh for Peter. Jesus doesn't bring that statement up. Jesus doesn't remind him of his failure. He simply lovingly asks Peter a question. Do you love me more than these? Now most biblical scholars give two answers, two distinct possibilities to what these can refer to. Jesus could have been referring to the other disciples with whom Peter enjoyed such close fellowship. But I think more, more likely the second option is, is, is better. That Jesus was referring to the nets and the boat and the fish 
where Peter had spent most of his life making a living. See, Peter's first instinct after his failure was to go back to the life he had before. And our instinct and our first priority when we fail and when we sin is to typically go back to the life we had before. And Jesus is reminding Peter, that life is done. That life is gone. I have not called you to be a fisherman any longer, but a fisher of men. It's possible that Peter was wondering if his ministry, if his service to the Lord was finished. That somehow his failure had disqualified him permanently from serving the Lord. Maybe he thought himself unfit to serve the King of Heaven. But so often with the Lord, brokenness is part of the training. And the Lord has no sharp rebuke for Peter but ask Peter the only question that matters. And when we fail, it's the only question that should matter to us. Do you love me? Jesus knows you're going to sin. He knows you're going to fall. The question is, do you love him? Are you willing to put off your pride and your arrogance and to turn from that sin and say, Lord, I need you and you alone. That's why David was called a man after God's own heart. David wasn't great. David was a mess up. He, he was just like Peter. He was an idiot. Just like you and I. And yet God calls him a man after his heart because when he failed, he picked himself up and he didn't run away from Christ. He ran to him. That's the call, the reminder for you and I this morning. Do you love Jesus? All of our service in the kingdom of God flows out of a love for Jesus. Only a service completed out of a motive of love and faithfulness to the person of Christ will be of eternal value. All of us in the kingdom of God are called to do our part, to take the message of the gospel, to take the hope that Christ has given you out of these walls and into the communities of those that need to hear it. Peter writes later in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a calling for each and every one of us. You are called to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there are many things in this moment that Peter was expecting Jesus to say to him. And you think on a four or five day journey, he had been playing a lot of those in his head. What's the Lord going to say about my failure? I don't think Peter was expecting to be asked about his love for Christ. When Jesus asked him the first time, he asked him if he loved Christ with an agape love. 
Peter responds saying that he loves Christ with an affectionate love, avoiding using that word agape. Now, people have a lot of ideas on why he says that, why he responds in that way. But I think it's because his self-confidence, his failure, all the sin that he had piled up in that last two weeks just overwhelmed him. And he did not feel worthy to, to respond to the Lord the way he had responded to him. Jesus says, I love you completely. And Peter's saying, I don't love you. I don't love you like you love me. We all believe that. That's how we all think. We know that's true. And yet Jesus is not satisfied with that response. He asks him again, do you love me with an agape love? And each time, Jesus is calling Peter back to the task in which he called him to at the beginning. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Care for my flock. He's calling him back to love others the way that Christ has loved him. And when we as Christians fail, when we sin and struggle, it's the same call for us. Come back and love my people. That is how I want you to love me. Jesus knows that we cannot love him with a complete agape love. But we can love one another and show that love to this world. It's amazing to me that the story ends here. Peter's restoration is complete. He doesn't tell Peter, okay, now go to the next town and, and do ministry for three years and then... He doesn't have some agenda for Peter. He simply wants him to go serve him in love. Peter was called to feed and care for the flock of God. And it, it was at this moment that all the disciples must have realized that the Lord had planned this entire moment. That none of it was an accident. Not the fishing, not the charcoal fire, not the conversation. Jesus had ordained every moment of that. And he restores Peter and all the other disciples in the same place he called them out in the first place. You see, when we move away from God's calling on our lives, oftentimes he needs to bring us back to the place where we started so that we can step forward and pursue what he's actually called us to do. It's important for us to grasp also that Christ's love for Peter was just as strong and just the same as it was before he denied him. Jesus didn't love Peter less because of his failures. And yet again, this is a, this is a lie from the enemy that we as Christians take into our own hearts. That somehow... Jesus' love for you is less when you fail. Let it never be true. Let that lie never come into your head. We are not loved any less for our failures. 
But like Peter, when the Lord calls us to return to him, it's time to get dressed and throw ourselves into the water and make a beeline for him. To return to the grace of the Lord and, and the love and the calling he has for your life. And we desperately resist that at times. Because it seems scary. What's the Lord going to say to me? And I think this picture, this moment with Peter, is a perfect picture of what he would say to you. When you return to him, he'd simply say, do you love me? And if you do, take care of my family. Now, all of the apostles were present at this meeting. It wasn't a private interaction with Peter. It says Peter helps them bring in the bring in the, in the boat, and they have their breakfast together. They eat. And then Peter has this conversation with Jesus in front of everyone. How difficult that must have been for him. But Jesus lovingly feeds his apostles. And his apostles all are brought back to a place where they can lovingly go out and feed Jesus' sheep. Peter is reminded that if he is to love Jesus, he is to love others. And there's a hard road of ministry before Peter in this moment of his life. It really hadn't begun for him until this moment. But if he's going to show Jesus that he loves him, he needs to care for the flock, for God's people. And following Jesus' example of serving and Peter's example of serving applies equally to us. As we look at this last appearing of Jesus to his apostles, and as we see the beginning of their responsibility to take this mission of the gospel, to go out, to be sent, we can begin to glimpse the way in which Jesus will equip and sustain them for this ministry. He's with them as they go forward and face rulers of kingdoms, large crowds and harsh environments for most martyrdom, and also for the many believers that will come as a result of their teaching that they are now to be in charge of. God promises to sustain them through the Holy Spirit and by his powerful word. It's the place where he feeds us and enables us, enables us to persevere, to keep going as Christians through the difficult times, through failures, through challenging relationships, through, through any other scenario that, that comes in, in your way. Jesus is calling us as a church to rise up as he has risen. And he's calling each one of us to live for God and to love and serve each other as he has loved and served us. And he promises to give you all that you need to succeed in that mission. But don't go back to the old life. Don't go back to what you know because it's comfortable and easy. Following Jesus is a difficult journey. And Jesus knew 
these disciples would have immense struggles as they left this place with him. And yet he promises that he would never leave them or forsake them. Just as he will never leave or forsake you. He promises to sustain us through every pain and trial and failure. And he's given us his word to do that. So for us this morning, as we think through the struggles and the difficulties of our lives and how we respond in those moments, my encouragement and my hope is that you run to Jesus in his word. You run to him in prayer. That you don't find yourself locked in a room, living in fear for what's going to happen because of your failure. Jesus is there waiting for you to return to him. And he promises to give you all that you need so that you can fulfill the calling he has for your life. Amen?